Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. Ursula Edgington, PhD, MA, Adult Education, is a qualified and experienced adult educator, author, and educational consultant. She's worked in various commercial sector jobs before undertaking qualifications in education and more recently in law. She's therefore, she therefore has a broad range of life experiences. She's published two academic books, several peer-reviewed, we like that, peer-reviewed articles and presented her research at numerous international conferences. I've just been reading a piece that she's written with someone else that was published on March 28th, and hopefully Ursula can give us some details about that. But Ursula Edgington joins us now on Reality Check Radio to talk about, well, I guess most of this chat will be around the state of university education, universities as institutions. Ursula, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks for making some time for us. Thank you, Paul. It's a real pleasure to meet you and and to be part of this revolution. It is a bit of a revolution. It kind of feels like a mini one. Thanks for saying that. So there was a fascinating piece that you wrote only published what a couple of weeks ago um tell us about that piece and and where it was published and and the kind of audience that 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 could have seen it so um yeah it's a piece that is part of a series um that is going to be published it's not actually live yet but hopefully it will be soon on uk column news website um where there's a new section on education, really, because we recognise that there was a real need um, to to get to the core of a lot of these issues that we're facing in our societies all around the globe at the moment, um, to do with critical thinking skills, you know, and teacher education, uh, quality of, of education is something that I've always um, specialised in. That was what I did my PhD in, my, my published PhD. Um, and I've only been in New Zealand for 10 years, so I've kind of got a, uh, an interesting perspective of how things have changed in New Zealand over the last 10 years and also obviously my experience in Europe and in the USA. So, yeah, I'm very pleased to, to share any experiences uh, with you and with your audience about that. That's great. Um, from reading this piece, and it sounds like I got a sneak preview <laughs> of it uh, ahead of it being published. The kind of overarching feeling I came away with was that universities, the institutions that are universities, and I guess applying in Western countries, because that's the only real knowledge I have. And it's interesting you can see it from both what UK experience and comparing it here, because there'll be local nuances, I would imagine, here. But the overarching feeling was that there are some kind of um, intersection point for a whole lot of things. And once you start unpicking that point, you start to understand or explain other phenomena, let's say, in the society. Have I got that right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And um, the perception that academia is some sort of higher level of knowledge and esteemed and sort of secretive. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's very much hidden, isn't it, to, to the public view. So it's interesting to, to unpack that a bit. So... You, you write a bit too about the history of universities, and um, in fact, you're going right back to you know um, ancient Greece as a That's starting point, and occupying the young minds of the of the men of Athens. I think was a, a, a one of the early goals, and yeah. and, it, and those are the foundations, and and spool through all these hundreds or, or millennia um, in between. Uh, it, it seems that up till quite recently, it was a very um, honourable kind of philosophy behind the institution that, yeah. that resisted, you know, it being corrupted. It was all about free thought, open That's debate, all those things. And then something happened. Yes, something happened. Yeah, I mean, it was always about universities as the critical conscience of society. That's what their role was, to question, you know, to be curious about anything and everything. Um, and, and that was the foundation of new knowledge. I mean, the, the thing about writing a PhD is 
the thing that sets apart a PhD from other levels of learning is, as you probably know, it's got to be new knowledge. Um, so you're, you're, you know, intrinsically investigating things that other people have never uncovered before. Um, but yes, that's become corrupted, I think, um, along with the use of devices and addictive apps and social media propaganda, um, which young people, as we know, are, are very uh, susceptible to. And yeah, the, the ideologies that are creeping in, in amongst this propaganda has, has distorted what the perception or the definition of that new knowledge is, what the allowed, you know, what is allowed um, in, in these academic institutions and what isn't has been very, very controlled. That's an interesting word, allowed, like you've got to, what, seek permission or something like that. I would have thought that anything would go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you think about the PhD, for instance, that an academic supervisor um, has obviously got interests in keep maintaining their role and the funding will come in uh, from specific entities that are interested in continuing that that particular line of investigation with that research and so therefore any students that come along and say um you know excuse me professor can i do uh, some research with you um then you know it's got to tick the boxes in terms of conforming to that particular um, model of you know that worldview or that that model of um, research that topic. The expectation is that the outcomes from that research will fit a fit a box, you know, will tick a box, and therefore um, the research will continue to be funded in that direction. Anything that's questioning that particular outcome won't be allowed. For, through various, you know, strategies, there's there's very, and I've outlined some of those in the in the article that you've read. Um, you know, there's various strategies that institutions use to censor, deplatform, um, and just prevent in any way possible, even to the extent of you know firing people from from the institution um, to make sure that that doesn't get out into the big wide world. Oh, so it's all about uh, maintaining the public perception as as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we've seen plenty of that, haven't we? Um, recently, exactly. in particular. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the climate change, um, the whole climate change narrative is a is a great example of that. There's been plenty of people who have, um, you know, raised questions, legitimate questions, um, have, you know, in, in produce some research which uh, the outcomes of which you know may not um, run parallel to the political narrative and and those people have have not been able to successfully promote their ideas um, or even ask questions you know it seems that um, if you if you think of truth it seems that it's true if enough scientists or academics think it is which yeah. of course is meaningless because the, what a, a, a recent example is I'm quite into space stuff and the James Webb telescopes up there. And of course it can see a hundred times further than the Hubble and they've discovered galaxies at the edge of their viewing range, which is some mind bogglingly um, long distance that, that basically call into question fundamentally of the big bang theory. The interesting yeah. thing about that is, that in that in that particular discipline, they're not saying, "Oh no, well that can't be right." <laughs> they're, they're actually going, "Well, yeah, this is great. We've found something. Then it's and and who cares if it disproves or takes out all our theories? That's what we want." So it seems to be kind mm -hmm. of selective. If you're using that as an example, um, I suppose if you invest uh, what however many billion in, in a space telescope, you want to see results from it, and you're going to be excited, whatever that shows. But that, that's kind of a rare example. And that, that whole thing about truth, if it's not approved by the right people in the right way, then, then, it's, then it's not the truth, though the truth can, can change. Yeah. So yeah. Where, where is truth? Uh, I think 
Well, at the moment, unfortunately, truth is where the money is. And, you know, if you're talking about outer space discovery, I'm sure Elon Musk would be very pleased uh, to discover that there was, you know, a new galaxy out there or that the Big Bang Theory could be disproved. Mm. Mm. They shouldn't have been there, you see, under the, <laughs> yeah. uh, under the current theory, but that, that was accepted. Um, yeah. So you, you used the word corrupted before. Um, is it easy enough to just boil it down to follow the money? Is it one of these follow the money things uh, ultimately again? One Originally, I sort of felt that. Um, and, yeah, there's no doubt that financial situation, especially in New Zealand, because, of course, you know, you know that our cost of living, even before this latest crisis, was very, uh, very expensive and um, salaries were relatively low. You know, cost of living, cost of houses was high, etc. So there's there's definitely an element of the financial motivations um, ha- having on people. But I think there's a book um, that I think I cite in this article. Um, Carpenter, the editor's name is um, Carpenter and Moss, the editors, talking about what. Is it, you know, is it about the money? The regulatory capture is a phrase. And they they use a cultural capture uh, concept. So that's more about people wanting to help each other. You know, that's that's what it comes down to. Where where, you know, 90% of people are good people with hearts. Um, and if they're in a role where they are given a certain amount of power and control. Um, it kind of goes with the territory that you want to help out people who see the the challenges that are put in front of them um, as as something that needs to be overcome. You see what I mean? So, mm. so, so the regulators that should be preventing the conflicts of interest that exist, for instance, in the university system between applying and obtaining funding and taking on a research project that perhaps isn't, you know, ethically, ethically um, grounded or in, in an area of research that is going to be, you know, helpful to, to anybody. Um, you know, the, the funding would be that that dilemma would be overcome because people are culturally um, invested in helping each other out. Well, you maybe could argue that's gone. That that's sort of been broken up a bit. Uh, private money in universities, public-private partnerships. Seems to me that there's, um, and what do I know? But it seems to me there's a, a great opportunity for private money to come in, and and the the that's tagged with well, really, we don't want to hear anything negative about what we do. And in fact, w- what we'd like to hear is, you know, subtle endorsements of what we're doing, even if the information doesn't bear that out. And and the institution is made aware, or the individuals responsible for that relationship are made aware that if it doesn't kind of go that way, we won't be hanging around. So that incentivizes the presentation of knowledge in that case, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and it's not helpful if somebody comes along and disrupts that idea. Um, well, that, that, that could upset the apple cart a bit, couldn't it? Um, uh, I, I was looking into who's getting what. And, you know, somebody that uh, we hear quite a bit of, a, a certain Dr. Michael Baker, turns out that, you know, his area of Otago University and what he's involved in uh, and the various um, public health studies you know, um, pulls in significant millions every year. Mm. So I, I can understand why no one would want to upset that. You don't want to. And and we can talk about the bureaucracy here too mm. and the effect, the management class, not ne- necessarily the academic layer, but the management layer on top of that. Um, I mean, are they working against or with the institution it seems maybe more more against or, or they're trying to sort of fashion it in a, in a in their own way mm. you know a lot of new zealand academics senior academics also run their own their own little consultancy firms on the side um and that 
definitely has an impact on not only the quality of the academic work that they might be doing at the institution, but also, um, you know, they can farm out aspects of their research to their own consultancy, um, you know, un under the cover of, oh, yes, you know, this is a reliable, um, you know, ethical, well-established, in inverted commas, yeah. uh, you know, consultancy. No, no one's going to criticise, in other words. Yeah. Um, well, nobody in the little circle of, of friends. Um, and, and anything, you know, it, it is about that status quo. You know, they, they are in, they are basically the gatekeepers of knowledge at that institution. And anybody who comes along who might be younger, freshly qualified, ambitious, um, you know, see the opportunities for change to make a better um, situation for the students um or, or other elements of the of the education provision uh like you know simple things like learning online you know when when um when i was originally in new zealand i was absolutely appalled to see that the online provision for students who for whatever reason couldn't get to their lectures um just wasn't there you know nobody wanted to engage in making um the format and the accessibility of those online seminars um, are good quality. Um, so in, in anything like that that sort of questions the status quo um, just, just gets deleted, deplatformed, um, you know, pushed, pushed away because it's, it's any, anything that's changed is, is viewed as negative, not needed. A threat. A threat. Yeah, a threat, exactly, yeah, because of the insecurity. Yeah. You mentioned students. Um, I wonder um, if you've got any thoughts on the relationship of the institution has with the students, because it seems to me now it's more of a business deal than mm. an education deal. They're taking on debt to learn things, yeah, and, and, and that's geared to having a job and yeah. to get a better salary. And that's what you're always told, um, you know, get a, um, a, a university education, you get paid more. Well, that may be not necessarily so these days, plumbers and Builders and uh, other people are doing quite well on on the money. So, are they seen? Are students seen as customers, or are yeah. they seen? Um, are, are they seen like they used to be seen? Like you know, young minds ready to fill up, and and like yeah. you know, ancient Greece, you know, <laughs> occupying the minds of the young people, or is this just a? You know, this is this is just part of the business model, and. Um, yeah, what's the attitude, the change in attitude to students? Because that must be a big part of it. Because I mean, that's the whole purpose of the thing. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely where I uh, realised that my values were not the same as a lot of the institutions in New Zealand, um, was that I had always been, I mean, bear in mind, my background was commerce. You know, I left school with, you know, not much in terms of qualifications. I had 15 years in commerce and sales and call centre jobs and, you know, you name it, insurance, uh, you name it, I did it. Um, so I went back to education later in life and, and, you know, caught the education bug sort of thing and just loved learning, learning for learning's sake. Um, and pretty much I was always, I mean, obviously there was disappointments, but but always there were teachers who were inspirational and teachers who recognized, saw the potential in me um, to do better. And that's what drove me on. That's what motivated me. Um, I think definitely now the focus is on student fees, which are, you know, in some universities astronomical, um, especially for international students. And, and I've seen this from both sides, Paul. You know, I, I've been a lecturer. I've been even recently in, you know, I did my uh, master's in legal studies at Auckland University. So I've seen how students are, are taught, you know, are, are treated. Um, and, you know, I, I prepare myself to be disappointed by these experiences. And even, even with that preparation, I'm still disappointed. You know, my right. expectations it's even are low. worse than yeah, you thought. My, my expectations are low, and yet I'm still disappointed. Um, in terms of student fees, remember a lot of the international students are paying three or more times 
more in fees than than the domestic students and a lot of those international students have dried up now yeah and that's why they're perhaps looking to china as a partner to a lot of these universities to bring in you know under um, special special arrangements chinese students who they know will go through the system unquestioning because that's how they've been brought up they won't necessarily have those critical thinking skills that are so essential in life um and they and from their perspective they probably see it as an opportunity to get a work visa and later residency here in New Zealand um you know and I, and I'm not begrudging them that that's obviously you know that's why I'm here I I wanted to be part of the New Zealand um society um but but yeah the the universities have become yeah that that commercial side they've lost sight of what their actual purpose is which is that critical conscience of society i'm going to ask you how you think that that can be you know adjusted back to what it i think we all agree it should be it's interesting what you say about um students from overseas paying big fees mm. i mean in a normal business those who are paying the most get the most attention. Mm. So, you know, it's great that <laughs> us New Zealanders can create a stable country where universities can operate. But who's getting who's getting the attention? Yes. It's a, it's a good question because I can't see any evidence really that those international students are getting more attention than domestic students. Um well, I, I guess um, that could show itself in um, in trying to r- remove as many barriers to qualifying as possible. Mm. Is there any dumbing down effect that might come from that? Because you don't want someone coming and spending a lot of money and and not not getting over the line. Yeah, there's definitely that element of dumbing down because um, that that's a route. A lot of these international students see the student visa as a route um a, a very determined route so it's not you know it's a it's like buying it, in right it's like buying in yeah absolutely that conflict of interest is there because you know why would you why would you ever criticize your professor if you knew that that person was going to control the rest of your career that's that's where i was heading yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and um, and with given that the university management is aware of how the um, the income breaks down, who's paying most? Yeah. Um, you wonder if it's possible that the poor old locals um, get caught up in that and get assessed, or um, have to sort of dance the same tune. You know. Yeah, yeah. The the other issue is that a lot of the lecturers, in my experience aren't necessarily aware of how flawed the actual provision of the of the teaching and learning is. Really? Yeah. Explain that a bit more. So to give you an example, um, without going, it's difficult without going into too much detail, but um, I, I know that a lot of the courses, individual courses within uh, degrees they're not they're not controlled for quality necessarily as I would define it you know from my English background there's not necessarily the opportunity for you know getting together with colleagues and having a good discussion about how could we you know present this information in a more interactive way how might we improve the um, you know the way that this exam is, you know, is presented or whatever, that there's very little, in my experience, of that sort of professional conversation. Um, the reasons for that, you know, are probably to do with the tall poppy syndrome and, and lots of other sort of anti, anti-intellectual kind of cultural issues. Um, but, yeah, does that does that... Makes sense. Well, well, I wonder if you know if Einstein was present there and he started swinging out with these ideas that that changes that changed people's perception of reality. What would he be sort of like pulled back down into the uh, you know too 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 tall a poppy? You know, 
Yeah. Even if you're a genius, perhaps. Yeah. It it, it again goes against everything that you would think. Um, If you use the last few years as an example, there's been a worshipping of academics, actually, experts. Um, They bandied the names around epidemiologists here all the time, Mm. a computer modeler, you know, we get down on our knees and bow to them now, so on and so forth. There seems to be a a sort of idolization of them. Even, you know, doctors, I'm thinking of Bloomfield, became some kind of rock star. Um, Not my kind of rock star, I got to say, but... But but they were the media have, have promoted them. Seems to me that they've got to a sort of a high priest and priestess status mm. in the culture, and with you know what we know as being taught in universities and the woke culture, which many of us are concerned about. It sounds like universities are having a negative effect on society. Mm. Um, if you're looking big picture, I'm sure they still do good, but a negative effect overall, you could argue. So from your experience on the inside, what can you do about that? Because normally if you've got a corrupt, let's say, institution, you just want to shut it down and reset it and maybe reboot it. Yeah. Could we do that with universities? Excuse me. Could we do that with universities? Do you think it's heading towards that time where, you know, for for the sake of the overall health of the society, that, that you, you've really got a circuit break it, sort of stem the problem, cut it off, cauterize it, I think is the um, term, and start again with a reset. Is, is that too crazy to think about that? No, absolutely, Paul. I totally agree. And, I, you know, my from my sort of outsider's perspective, I wonder whether there is actually room for eight universities in a small, sparsely populated country like New Zealand. You know, do mm. we actually need to consolidate some? We certainly need to rethink who heads up these universities and and how their curriculums and departments are constructed. And certainly the teacher education system, you know, that that's really a priority for me is, you know, thinking about the amount of parents that I've spoken to recently that have just felt forced to pull their kids out of school because they can't trust the teachers and the schools to deliver you know, what they what they think their children need. <laughs> um, well, it seems that the education system, anecdotally, albeit anecdotally, is trying to, in a kind of way, replace the parent's role. Yeah. Sort of override it. Yeah. I mean, how could you ever be that arrogant? Yeah, I think it's the way society has moved, though, isn't it, Paul? Over time, you know, it, because of the cost of living, et cetera, parents have been forced you know, both of them have been forced to go out to work full time, maybe have, you know, more than one or two jobs. Um, and it just leaves the kids vulnerable to um, being, you know, farmed out to people that will take responsibility for them. So it's kind of catch 22, isn't it? Because the schools don't think of themselves as a responsible parent um, because they're not being respectful to the genuine parents. So it, it's, it's very worrying. You know, I'm, I'm glad really in some ways that I'm not a parent myself because it, it's, it would be very concerning to me knowing what I know about the poor quality teacher education in this country. How poor uh, is it? How, how poor? Because we used to, again, we used to claim to be one of the best in the world. My mother yeah. trained as a teacher. I've known plenty of teachers along the way, old school. Um, And I think it was different then. It was a a lot more about, you know, learning the basics, having the foundations in there, the, you know, the three R's and everything. What, what happened there? Where where did that sort of start to go wrong? Do you think? Yeah, I think, well, in a lot of spaces and a lot of disciplines, New Zealand is decades behind the rest of the world. Um, And I think education isn't an exception to that. So basic things like, you know, learning to read, um, those sort of theories and strategies, I haven't seen evidence of them being discussed in a teacher education forum like it should be, you know. And and the students that I taught, you know, who were just beginning their teacher education training, uh, some of them have openly admitted to me that they'd never read a book in their lives. Um, 
thought that they would, when I asked them, you know, what motivated you to come into teaching, their response was something like, well, you know, we get long holidays, should be a, should be a good laugh. You know? Oh, okay. Well, that's a, <laughs> you know, so that's going to help. Exactly. My kid. So yeah. That, that professional, um, that professional identity has slipped and, and with it, we know, I mean, you talk about anecdotes, but you know, that there's definitely lots of factual evidence about the lack of literacy and numeracy skills in New Zealand compared to other OECD countries. Um, and, and that's, you know, that is down to, okay, the, the parents as well, but that is down to the strategies that the schools are using and the curriculum not addressing the, the children's needs. Well, I don't think the parents have much time to take it all in anyway. Exactly. Yeah, and, exactly. and they assume that people who are uh, employed and trained are professionals yeah. and will will do their job. And uh, I, mean, if I remember back to my experience with the kids, you know, you'd have the teacher parent-teacher meeting a couple of times a year and they give you a quick uh, once-over of how they're doing. And, yeah. and you think, okay, well, that's all right. And that was about it, you know. Um, right. That was about as much engagement um, as possible back then when, you know, everyone's busy and working, like you're saying. What about, though, it seems to have moved away from the basic academic stuff to trying to culturally indoctrinate children. And that's what I mean about, you know, sort of the war with the parents, you know, yeah. uh, especially with the gender stuff now as a prime example. Yeah. Again, it, it, it's gone... I think in anyone's logical assessment, it's gone off the rails, hasn't it? Yeah. It really is off the rails. It's, yeah. it's in a weird, weird land right now. Yeah. And I do think that is to do with the quality of the teacher education because, you know, gender, if the ideology of this whole, you know, gender fluid identity business is about social constructionism, that's the, that's the theoretical concept, isn't it? That, you know, gender is a social construct. And so therefore, we need to somehow question it because it's about our environment rather than our actual biological being. Well, there's a whole academic literature, you know, there's a whole discussion to be had around not only what that philosophical position and worldview is, but also, you know, what the, you know, let's problematize it. Let's look at it in depth. How has it changed over the decades? I mean, this isn't a new idea. It's, you know, Berger and Luckman, I think it was, who you know, wrote the original book on social constructionism. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's years old. But of course, you know, do the teachers know that? Have they ever had, you know, the the philosophical um, seminars around what social constructionism is and how they could maybe present it to their class, assuming that their class is old enough to actually understand it? Um, you know, but that's missing. It's a gap. And instead of that, you've got this ideology, um, whether it's, you know, climate change or gender um, identity or, you know, what, and the environment or whatever it is. Um, and, and so it sort of loses its depth. You know, there's, there's a lot of shallowness in academia in New Zealand. And that's the thing that really worries me, this dumbing down, this lack of critical thinking. Um, it is really harmful, especially when it's in an environment together with, you know, the fact that you can't even question. You know, if you're if you're questioning it, suddenly you become the enemy because these people feel so insecure about not being able to engage in a, you know, in a, in a proper professional debate. Yeah, the hostility is an uh, interesting thing because I suppose on the surface these are all nice people and they're polite and, and everything like that, but when you know can turn nasty. Yeah. And and also just thinking back to what you're saying and, and what I was asking about um, the lower down, I guess primary and and secondary, uh, but mainly primary education. Again, there seems to have been um, a loss of. Oh, what's the word? Um, yeah, critical thinking and understanding what you can and can't do around young people. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems to be, I mean, I've had three children. I know what being a parent's like. And you know innately as a parent that there is such a thing as the innocence of youth. Yeah. And, and you can corrupt that innocence so easily and have such terrible consequences 
from it potentially right through the rest of life. Yet mm-hmm. there seems to be a willingness to treat particularly young children in a very irresponsible and I would say a moral way where you're, 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 you're putting, you're, you're, you're shattering potentially that innocence, big no, no for someone like me. And I can't quite understand um, how um, at, uh, you know, the institution level of it, that, that, that could have got over the line that that could have got through that, that, that is a real, in my mind, corruption of thinking, taking away the innocence of youth. Yeah. I, I don't get that. Any ideas on that? Yeah, I think, you know, it, you've just reminded me of um, something I think Peter McCullough said to you the other day about the um, the military, you know, the, the vaccine mandates and how um, those strongest people in the in the military were effectively forced out. Those with the with the best values with the critical thinking skills, et cetera. And look what's happening to our education system. You know, there are some very, very good teachers out there who are really fighting for, you know, good quality education and critical thinking skills and, you know, refusing to teach things that they think are actually inappropriate for a certain age group or whatever, you know, and, and these are the pe- these are the same people who have been forced out of their profession um, for, for holding principles and values and morals that, that, you know, should be an intrinsic part of our education. Exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 it's uh, such an upside-down world, um, yeah. isn't it? Uh, I, I, I strug- I strug- I'm always struggling with the way a mass of people can operate in this way yeah. and, and kind of get away with it. Yeah, yeah. It's no wonder that some people think that this is a deliberate plan, isn't it? Because, you know, it's been very convenient to get troublemakers uh, like us out of the way <laughs> to a certain extent for a short amount of time. <laughs> yeah, well, what are the, um, the link-ups with some of these institutions with global entities? Yes. What do, we know about, what, are we about, what do we know about those sort of links? Yes, that's a really important question, Paul. So there is the WEF. Um, global universities forum, I think they call it, that um, that basically uh, partners up with specific universities, top universities, um, and even if they're not explicitly mentioned on their website, you know there are uh, partnership agreements between the WEF um, and universities, and and you know obviously a lot of the funding for various universities comes from places like the Gates Foundation. The Welcome Fund, um, and you connect with those funds by being associated with these bigger groups. That's right. These global groups. You no, know, it's a bit of a game, you know. Applying for research funding is very much a, a you know jumping um, through the hoops kind of scenario. You you know who the um, who the peer reviewers are of the applications. Uh, you mirror the the phrases. You know what their outcomes, um, you know, their, their required outcomes will be. And so you sort of funnel your research into that area. Um, you know, there's multiple tricks to the trade um, in terms of, you know, being on the right board, going to the right conferences, um, you know, and, and that was, yeah, I mean, that it just, that's part of the, part of the reason why that, element of academia to me is just nauseating to be honest because that's not authentic research that's not what new knowledge and critical thinking is about um that's yeah it can become just an endorsing of the again the uh private public partnership engine um you you, i can imagine uh, setting out uh grant sort of parameters that you say, well, we, we hope to find what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. And, right. and they're saying, well, that's, that sounds good. Now we're talking. Okay. Good luck with that. If you, with what you know, if, if someone came to you and said, okay, Ursula, reinvent the system. We, we need to do what I said before. We need to shut it down for a bit. We need to reboot it. Yes. And I'm thinking just listening there that probably one of the, the, the first things would be, I'm second guessing here could be wrong is that you got to get the money out of it. Yeah. 
yeah, take the definitely. money out of it. I mean, it used to be that um, there were less bums on seats in universities, but, um, you know, people weren't put into um, high debt, et cetera, to attend. The selection was, you know, um, more brutal, let's say, but uh, if you're in, you'd be supported. Yeah. Taking the money, do we need to go back to to the older model somehow or do we need to completely reinvent it? Yes. I mean, there's no reason why we can't go back to an older model, but, I mean, obviously people still need to make an income, you know. Um, yeah, but it would be in the interest of the taxpayer. I yeah. mean, you know, we're throwing lots of money at all sorts of different things. You know, for the, um, uh, I'd have no problem as a as a taxpayer if X amount of billion was put aside every year for just yeah. research. I don't yeah. care what the research is. I mean, it's got to mean something. It's, there's got to be some purpose in it. There has to have some, if there's a good outcome or a, a yeah. new knowledge outcome, it's got to be beneficial somehow. But just for knowledge's sake, you know, three, four, even five billion invested out of our GDP is not a huge proportion for the results it could deliver, and it's probably that size anyway. Yeah, in ballpark. We could do that tomorrow. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's something that we're we're hopefully um, on the pathway towards. Um, so, my colleague Gloria Moss and I, and have, you know, have accumulated a few other academics who are interested in pursuing some sort of independent uh, research university where the students, you know, rather than being tied to a particular um, discipline um, could pursue their own investigations, you know, uh, f- through curiosity, um, and the outcome would be a publishable book, you know, a peer-reviewed, published book. Wait, on does peer-reviewed mean anything anymore? I mean, yeah. it, it kind of sounds like fact-checked to me now. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, um, it's just another kind of rubber stamp. Yeah, sounding thing, and I'm sure that. Um, you know, you can, you can, there's wiggle room in the peer review, let's say. It's one of those, again, terms that's used to try and sort of legitimize or to, to stop anyone either criticizing something or if you haven't got to peer review that there might be something wrong with your research because not, yeah. not enough boffins have looked at it. Yes, that's right. So, the, the, I mean, that, this is a, a whole sort of different conversation that we could have maybe another time, Paul, but... The, the, one of the reasons why peer review at the moment has been corrupted is because, especially in New Zealand, because, of course, it's a very small, you know, clique of people. So, so it's the same peers every time, right? That, yeah, and you know who they are. Even if they don't put their name on it, you know from their writing style um, or whatever, you know who is peer reviewed and what comments they're saying. And so, you know, some people, of course, they'll know that, if that editor has got to publish it, the ways around that would be to cite that editor's own work. You know, it's like a ego stroking kind of, you know, strategy. Um, you know, and, and there's a whole bunch of issues around the pros and cons of, of publishing what are perceived to be peer-reviewed articles in, in a in a publication. I mean, what does it actually mean? How many people actually read? you know, those outcomes anyway, very few um, probably. So, yeah, I mean, there are ways around that as peer review that, you know, I do myself. I know my colleagues do. You know, you have a trusted friend who happens to be interested in that area and he or she will um, review that article and give you genuine feedback on it, you know, that's, that's meaningful. Um, and they haven't got any other motive or, 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 you know, or incentive other than genuine feedback, you know. I mean, how do we know that the, the, peer, the peers doing the reviews aren't just scratching each other's back? Okay, well, you peer review my thing, and then yeah. when it comes to me to peer review yours, if you give me a good review, I'll give you a good review, yeah. and, and it's all just sort of like show pony stuff. But these are reviews, Paul, that are only known to the author and the and the person that's done the feedback they're not published they're not oh so we're not, taking everyone's word for it are we because yeah because um somebody who you trust who's an expert in that particular field um you don't have to take on their feedback but if you 
ask them for specific feedback and they give that to you and that then leads to um you know a a, a change and a publication in a in a particular outlet i mean that's the other big question is where is that publication heading is it going to something independent like uk column news or um reality check radio or you know whatever the or policy analysts or policy architects who need to have certain tick certain boxes to get certain arguments across the line i mean if you if you're saying i'm peer-reviewed to the public that sounds like something but like you say, no one knows who peer reviewed it, what they said, what the comments were. Um, it just sounds like a, I made the point with fact checking. Oh, that's yeah. been fact checked. Yeah, oh, really? Right. Okay, yeah. well then it must be true then. But I have no <laughs> knowledge of who checked it. Um, yeah. if, you know how it was looked at, even indeed if it was actually done. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it it boils down to those conflicts of interest. You know, if people have got conflicts of interest. They need to declare them. And it is, I mean, at the end of the day, genuine new knowledge is based on being authentic and, and trustworthy and honest with each other, you know. And, and if we can't, as human beings, go back to those sort of basic principles, um, then what's the point, <laughs> you know? Well, I think a few people are asking that question. So just to sum up, <laughs> how long has this this way of organising universities got i mean surely the thing yeah. falls in on itself at some point yeah it'll, Inevitable, it'll, isn't it it'll be interesting to see what happens in new zealand we're we're um in a very unique position here with you know people who maybe can't afford especially now the high fees that the universities are charging limited um employment opportunities for the students that come out unless they're going to go overseas um you know a, a high percentage of chinese students who are you know to a certain extent impacting in a big way on new zealand institutions remember a lot of these chinese partnerships mean that universities actually have a building you know an institution in china so they you know that gives the academics a nice opportunity to go to china and make more links with the ccp and uh, maybe obtain some more funding opportunities or, or Well, whatever. we know that the CCP, particularly in the United States, I think has been um, uh, very good at uh, getting its tentacles into big institutions and shaping, in a way, the way they evolve. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's very worrying. Very, very worrying. Are we seeing signs of that here? I Not think so. Not talked about much. Yeah, I think New Zealand has... Um, I mean, the property um, that is owned by by the Chinese in New Zealand, it's, um, it's all pervasive. It's culturally and financially, you know, concerning, I think, to have that. If, if, I, if I threaten to pull the students, I've got good bargaining power, haven't I? Exactly, yeah. And likewise, if I want to alter the property market... <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All I got to do is threaten to 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 force the sale of all those properties onto the market. And suddenly, you've got a you've got a uh, um, too much supply, and down go the prices, and then you've got a property issue. Yeah, it's very it's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds like it's a bit grim at the moment. Would that be an accurate way of describing it? I'm it sure is, there are positives, it, but yeah, you, know, you get that sinking feeling. Well, I do a bit. <laughs> The positive um, is that this crisis has allowed a lot of us who were on the, you know, we're, I've been a freelance academic for, you know, probably six, seven years now. Um, and this, this crisis has allowed me to reconnect with colleagues who were, you know, aware that there was a problem, but hadn't realised until this COVID nonsense that it was such a, a deep-rooted problem. So there's definitely opportunity there for, for new beginnings and more genuine, curiosity-driven research and teaching. Um, and, you know, if there's homeschooling parents out there um, who, who are thinking about, you know, going alone, then I would definitely encourage them to, to um, gather with other like-minded parents and and go with their 
their own instinct, you know, because teaching and learning at the end of the day is is really about fun, interaction, creativity, you know, all those fantastic things that our education system seems sadly to us to have forgotten. So what you're talking about is maybe, and this could be how, how it plays out, an emergence of like parallel systems. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. That could be the way it goes, actually. Yeah, I hope so. I really do see signs of it. I mean, Reality Check Radio is a is an example of that, isn't it? You know. Well, I guess it is, but we don't want to see division, do we? I mean, that's never a good thing. But if it's being imposed, you've got to react. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, give us a score. Your teachers love to 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 give uh, to assess things and to <laughs> to give marks. Um, on a scale of one to ten, where would you rate the universities? One to ten, where are they at? Is it even close to a pass? Oh, crikey! I I wouldn't know where to start, Paul. I think that one of their main problems is that they like to manipulate the figures to make themselves look like they're ten out of ten, and it's you know it's it's possible to do that if you look at certain like the ratio of student to teachers. Um, the numbers of international staff, you know, that all gives them brownie points in the international rankings. Um, so they they can pick and choose, you know, what, what makes them look good and claim to be, you know, in the top 10 universities in the world or whatever it is. But the reality on the ground that I've seen, and I've now been involved over the last few years in most of the universities in New Zealand, um, you know, the, the actual... Uh, quality of the teaching and learning that's happening there is is very disappointing. Okay, so like a D. Room for improvement. <laughs> a D or a C minus. Yeah, room yeah. for improvement. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, on the report card. That's right. Well, well, thanks for coming on and and sort of giving us a bit of a look into that. I know a lot of people have been wondering about universities, their role. And and like I say, that intersection point, that, 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 it seems to be where a lot of things come together. And if we can unpick that, maybe we can explain some of the wider phenomena that we're seeing in our governance and in the way, unfortunately, that people are, have kind of, I don't know if it's a split down the middle, but there's definitely be some sort of split, you know, the, yeah. and that's unfortunate. So that helps us in our insight to that. So Ursula Edgington, thank you for coming on and being on Reality Check Radio. Thanks for your kind words, and we might talk again. Yes, thank you very much, Paul, and keep up the great work. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.